1209. Happy Friday, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Once again, Jeff back in his rightful place on Monday. So I'm not on WTMJ every day, certainly not every week. So I don't have a, a weekend, you know, end of the week, a Friday award type thing. Of course, back in the day, Jeff and Charlie Sykes used to do that. I don't have that. But if I did, if I did, here would be the one today. Most brazen denial of the week. And we have a tie. We have a tie for the most brazen denial of the week. It is a tie between Jussie and Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots. The New England Patriots have already issued a statement denying that Robert Kraft broke any laws when he was caught up in a prostitution sting in Florida. Just talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. They have video. I mean, they have video. They did. If you were listening to WTMJ a few moments ago, it made it pretty clear. Police down there, look, we've got video of every guy and what was going on. But the Patriots have already, nope, Mr. Kraft did nothing illegal, which is an, it's an interesting choice of word. Jussie Smollett, I was on the treadmill at the gym today, and they had the closed caption on CNN at my gym. And... Uh, they had another defense lawyer on, just you know, as analysis, and, uh, and seen the closed caption, and she was just, she could not imagine that any lawyer would employ the strategy that Smollett's lawyers are using in this brazen denial when the Chicago police just apparently have oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of evidence that Smollett fabricated the the alleged attack against him. So that would be a tie in my book. If I can make some radio magic happen here, there's I have a chunk of sound in mind to go along with this. If I can find it and get it to Kyle before 2 o'clock, uh, we will do that because it reminds me of something. And if I can find it, there's audio, and I would send it to Kyle. We'll see if we can make that happen. Also, oh, next hour at 1 o'clock, uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson is scheduled to join us. And uh, activity in the last 24 hours, both in the House and the Senate, moving toward votes on a resolution to block President Trump's emergency declaration concerning the southern border. Uh, Senator Johnson has uh, voiced displeasure, disagreement to some degree with the emergency declaration, but hasn't said how he would vote. We'll talk to him about that. And as a Republican, as a Republican, what would his thoughts be of Wisconsin getting the Democratic National Convention? Just some of the things we'll be talking about with him after 1 o'clock. We start here. Now, you may have heard this. I mean, it was in the news. I'm not certainly not breaking anything here. But I want to spend some time on the topic. Uh, we'll set this up, and, I, and I'm hoping to get some feedback on this. If I say the name George Mendonza, it would be impressive if it rang a bell to you. You would be a pretty good student of history. But there's a good chance that you've seen a picture of him. In fact, there's a better than average chance that you've seen a picture of him because he is one of two subjects in one of the most famous photographs of the 20th century. George Mendonza was that guy 
He was that guy on August 14, 1945, when word was announced, the war's over. VJ, victory in Japan. He grabbed it. He had a date. Grabbed his date, ran out into Times Square. He, uh, they went to a bar, and he had a few. So there's just mass celebration in Times Square, right? Just all excited. He grabs a woman and kisses her. He spotted a young woman in a white nurse's outfit. Buzzing with joy, writes the Washington Post's Harrison Smith, now jolted by a memory of the nurses who cared for his wounded comrades at sea. He, he had served. He was still in the Navy. He put his arms around the woman, tipped her back, and kissed her. And then a photographer took the picture, and it's formally known as VJ Day in Times Square, where he's got her back leaning and kisses her. He died this week at the age of 95. Congestive heart failure. So, shortly after his death, there's a statue, I believe it's in Florida, of that moment, of him kissing that woman. Let me pick up with another story from the Washington Post. If you've been alive and in possession of eyeballs at any point in the past 75 years, chances are, writes Monica Hesse, you have seen the photograph of George Mendonca kissing Greta Zimmer Friedman on VJ Day in 1945. He, a sailor, ecstatic to not have to return to the Pacific. There would be no invasion of Japan, right? She, a dental assistant. Celebrating the war's end on her lunch break in Times Square. The photograph, published in Life magazine, showed Mendonza bending Friedman backward as her white uniform rode up her thighs. George Mendonza died this week after a long career as a Rhode Island fisherman and long marriage to his wife, Rita. Within 24 hours of his passing, a Sarasota, Florida statue that recreated his and Friedman's famous kiss was defaced. On Friedman's aluminum leg, in red spray paint, someone had written, Hashtag Me Too. As much as any image, the picture of Mendonza and Friedman has defined American perception of romance. Okay, I'm just going to stop there. No, it doesn't. It does not. It has never been a perception of romance, in my opinion. And then she compares it to Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in the movies other other movies. Mendonza's grip around Friedman's waist is fervent. Her body is limp, as if overwhelmed by the passion of his embrace. Behold the superlative ideal of a perfect kiss. Neither of them were identified until years after the photograph was published. A handful of other men and women also claimed to be the famous subjects, which allowed a daydreaming public to invent a fanciful backstory. Was the couple reunited lovers? Were they starry-eyed strangers drawn together by joyful attraction? The truth, when it came out, was more pedestrian. Mendonza, tipsy on a few drinks, had been on a date with his girlfriend at Radio City Music Hall when he heard about the end of the war. They dashed into the street, saw Friedman, whose uniform reminded him again of the nurses overseas, and he kissed her, a spontaneous act of gratitude. Friedman, for her part, was caught off guard. I didn't see him approaching, and before I knew it, I was in this vice grip, she once told an interviewer. I felt he was very strong. He was just holding me tight. It wasn't really a romantic event. She once told the Library of Congress, it wasn't my choice to be kissed. The guy just came over, kissed, and grabbed. 
Maybe it could be wonderful and exciting to be kissed by surprise by a stranger at the end of a long and terrible war. But when you hear Friedman's description of it, the whole thing starts to sound unpleasant. The whole photo starts to look unpleasant, too. The way her head is locked into the crook of his elbow, unable to move or avoid his lips. A man just died, and the thing he is most famous for is a thing that's actually super weird. It's exhausting sometimes to exhume and re-examine old stories and discover they don't look how you wish they would. But such is history, especially romantic history. In the hours after Mendonza's death, I watched reactions spread online, many of which amounted to, today, this iconic photo might be considered an assault. Some folks meant it indignantly. See how crazy this world has become? Others also meant it indignantly, but the opposite way. How dare we honor this bad man? I'd like to think it was more of a statement of fact. Today, this iconic photo might be considered an assault. It doesn't mean Mendonza was a monster. It doesn't mean humans were bad in 1945. It just means that stories don't always behave as we'd like. Our fantasies can be punctured by the reality of other people's feelings. Friedman said she and Mendonza kept an occasional contact and exchanged holiday cards. When a life photographer invited the pair to reunite in Times Square in 1980, she went, but she said she didn't want to reenact the kiss. A kiss based on one person's joy and another person's non-consenting shock isn't really a perfect kiss, and actually, it never was. So the statue honoring it in uh, Sarasota, I believe it is, Florida, someone wrote hashtag me too on her leg. I just, I'm going to withhold opinion here. I want to hear from some of you first. Just your take on what you just heard me share with you. 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 414-799-1620-1219. News Radio WTMJ. Twelve twenty-two news radio WTMJ. I have seen the photos a million times. By the way, Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. I have seen the photo many times. The iconic photo of a sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square, August fourteenth, nineteen forty-five. The day World War Two ended, victory in Japan. That sailor, George Mendonza, died this week, two days shy of his ninety-sixth birthday. And in this hashtag Me Too era, the debate is raging as to whether that was a hashtag Me Too moment. Just randomly grabbing a stranger, a woman he doesn't know, and planting one full on the mouth, you know, arching her back that way. And without coming right out and saying that, a columnist in the Washington Post strongly implied it, and a statue commemorating the moment was vandalized after his death with hashtag me too and it was later scrubbed off her aluminum leg. So what what's your take? What's your take on that kiss? What's your take on celebrating it or that it's something that has been remembered fondly? 414-799-1620 to Roger in Sheboygan. Roger, you're on WTMJ. I call even before, okay, after I heard about the death of the individual, the sailor, his passing, but before I heard about the controversy and before I heard anything about the defacement of the statue, the thought occurred to me, and, and like all of us, I've seen, I'm in my 60s, I've seen that picture over the years many times. And the thought occurred to me when I saw it more recently was, 
is that that was inappropriate. And I'm going to go a step further. And I was not alive in the 1940s, but I cannot believe that it was any more appropriate then than it would be in the year 2019. You don't just, I don't care if you're a man or a woman or whatever, or same sex, you don't walk up to somebody, put your arms around them, squeeze them tight and plant your lips on theirs. That's, that's wrong. Solid wrong. Now, and by the way, I'm uh, here would be, and I wasn't around, my parents were, but I, I would suspect that generally it was considered wrong in 1945. What do they used to call them, mashers, and that, you know, that sort of thing? A guy who would just approach a woman that way. Were it not August 14th, 1945, had America not just come out of a war? Were, now, this was an incredible moment of celebration going on in Times Square. If this was June 7th, 1948, and someone did that in Times Square, I think the reaction would have been very, very different. So do you think circumstances mitigate that, Roger, or not? Well, yes, absolutely. What he did, everybody almost chooses to excuse it. We're going to let it slide and celebrate the day, even if it's 50 or 60 years later or 70 years later, we celebrate the day. But, yes, absolutely, the setting the setting is why nobody has, has uh, had a bad attitude that I've heard of until recently. I mean, yes, the setting, just, if you want to say justifies it, you could say that, or excuses it. Not justifies it, it excuses it. Now, here's what I will say. I just found out, Roger, I didn't realize that George Mendonca was with his girlfriend when this happened. That does make it, it does make it kind of weird. I, I, I will grant you that. Thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. If you would like to weigh in, 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620, is it a hashtag Me Too moment? And in the wake of where we are in society today and what has happened in the last couple of years, should we look at that photo differently? Have some texts on this, and we can take some additional calls as well. 414-799-1620, News Radio WTMJ. Twelve twenty-eight News Radio WTMJ. That famous Times Square kiss at the end of World War II is that a hashtag Me Too moment? Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner to Paul in Illinois on that topic. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I think it's justified uh, at the end of the war for the type of war it was, and the fact that uh, I don't think the lady resisted. It'd be different if he had forced her into it. I'm, I'm assuming he didn't. Uh, he just he did it fast in a forceful way, but uh, I still think they were both celebrating a moment. That's uh, what I get the drift of over the years that I've you know, heard or seen in the statue picture or situation. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. Let's get a couple in quickly here. To DJ downtown. DJ, go ahead. Yeah, hey, I just want to say, you know, in the context of what happened, I've you know, never experienced, I, even though I served in the military, never experienced that kind of victory but i have been to sporting events where man i was give giving someone a really big hug after i won something after we won not even knowing that person i mean the brewers win game seven of the world series i don't know what i would do you know i mean um that's i just it's just an overflow of emotion you know it's i think 
has to be measured right. in the context. DJ, DJ, thanks, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. All right, John and Jane, you are next in that order. John in Caledonia, Jane in Milwaukee, please hang on. We will get to you in just a few minutes right after the news. Twelve thirty-five News Radio WTMJ. It is one of the most iconic moments in terms of being memorialized, mem- remembered in American history. The sailor kissing the nurse Times Square at the end of World War II. That sailor, George Mendonza, died at the age of ninety-five, two days short of ninety-six earlier this week. And now c- questions are: Well, was that really a hashtag Me Too moment, or at least in twenty nineteen? Should we recognize it as one? To John in Caledonia. John, thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I, I, thanks for taking my call. I still think this is an iconic moment, and I think you need to put it in the perspective of 1945 and not, 19, and not 2019. This guy just found out that the war was over. Likely, More likely than not, he was headed back to the Pacific Theater of Operations before the, the Japanese surrendered. And that had to be a huge relief because estimates were as high as a million casualties would be taken in the invasion of Japan. So to come out and say, well, to judge it by 2019, I think you have to look at it based on on, on, uh, on 1945, not 2019. John, thanks a lot for the call. And I think especially, I'll weigh in quickly here before we take Jane's call, particularly August 14th, 1945, and the point is an important one, that there's a very good chance George Mendonza, had had the atomic bombings not ended World War II, would have been headed to Japan as part of the invasion. And the invasion plans were already in place. It would have taken place probably in early September. Was it appropriate? No. Not, not 1945, not in 2019, to randomly grab a woman and kiss her without any, I don't know if mitigating circumstances is the right word, but this has always been looked at as a moment of exuberance. Heck, he was with his girlfriend, which I didn't realize until I read the story of his passing. The other issue that I have here is, I mean, let's be honest, who's the first person people think of when you say hashtag me too? Harvey Weinstein. And, and and that that label carries immense weight. And some things can be inappropriate and not rise to the level of hashtag me too when you think of uh, Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Mark Helper, and a bunch of others. I just I, I I I would resist labeling it as that. Was it inappropriate? Yeah. In the moment? Uh, come on, we, the country had been through a depression and a war. And I think, yeah, the part that he realized he was home to stay, uh, I think those things do explain it, if nothing else. Jane in Milwaukee. Jane, you're on WTMJ. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I was alive that day. I remember that day well. But I also remember coming home from school and walking past neighbors' houses and seeing the flags in the window saying, telling the world that their son had died in the war. This was the end for people of a 
horrendous time when their sons were in the army or the navy or whatever for long, long periods of time, and there was a great loss of life, and there was a great, uh, there was all this rationing and everything else that they had come through. They had given up their cigarettes, and they had given up meat and everything else for this war effort, and it was over. And the jubilation was something that you would not believe. There were people ringing bells and, and screaming and yelling, and people lighten up, give the man a little, he was excited, he was jubilant over this, the end of this god-awful war. And I, I just want people to be a little less PC and lighten up a little bit. Let's not nitpick everything. He was in the, in the moment just so excited and he grabbed her and kissed her. If he had been walking down the street any other time and done that, it would have been totally inappropriate. But that was not inappropriate. That was jubilation, and there's no other word for it. Jean, the only response I can think of to come up with that is God bless you. I, I, and I mean that sincerely. That was a great call, and I really appreciate you weighing in. Jane, th- I, I mean that. Thank you so very much. I think, look, especially someone who remembers that day, and that is a dwindling population. You know, uh, Mendonza was ninety. You know, was going to be ninety-six. There are few, few people still around that remember what that moment felt like. And she's right. Any other day, yes. But uh, yeah. My point would be, even there are inappropriate moments where when we start labeling everything hashtag me too, there there are moments for or events, incidents, actions for which men can be criticized. But the hashtag me too is such a powerful label. And by the way, I I, I fully understand the movement. I, I'm not I'm not one of those that that think it you know things are overstated when you look at the cases that really spawn the movement but it's it's like any other movement the danger of it becoming a magnet that attracts everything in its path and that i think would be unfortunate i think it's, it's really somewhat unfair that after his death george mendonza uh, suddenly now in some people's eyes it's seen as something he isn't. I have a couple of texts to share on this in a couple of minutes, and then we'll move on to something else. 1242 News Radio WTMJ. News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. I want to just finish up, put a bow, if you will, on the topic of. George Mendonza, the sailor who kissed a nurse in Times Square on the day World War II ended, August 14th, 1945, Victory in Japan Day. There's a column by Monica Hesse in the Washington Post from which I read, and I did not share the title, though. The title is, Don't Blame Me Too for Ruining the Most Iconic Kiss in History. The photo was never romantic. This is, I disagree with her, her core, the core of her thesis. I never saw that as a romantic kiss, ever. I saw it as a guy that's bouncing off the walls, 
celebrating the end of World War II. Again, uh, in any other circumstance, in any other situation, you would judge that very... You can't just... uh, If it were any other day in 1945, and you randomly grabbed a woman and kissed her, the reaction all around would have been different. It wouldn't have been caught by someone and... On, on camera, if it was, it would have been for evidence for police. So I never saw it as a romantic kiss. By the way, Kim in Milwaukee really liked Jane's call. Said, uh, great call from a member of our greatest generation. Uh, if you miss Jane's call, she remembers that day. So she has very different context of it. I, I again, As I mentioned a couple of moments ago, I... That, that is a powerful label that is wielded with hashtag me too. And there are things I think that are included with it that should not be included with it. And I think there are a lot of men who have gotten what they deserve in recent years. But uh, again, when it just starts attracting everything uh, from uh, a text, one, he was a kid. Two, he more than likely just spent a period of his life where he feared and saw death every day. Three, I'm sure he was drinking. That's confirmed. Four, the joy of winning an an American Pride was overwhelming. I'm sure it overtook him. Uh, That's Lou in West Allis. George says, a George text, If the Brewers win the pennant, I'm kissing who's ever next to me. I'll go to jail. It's worth it. I think it's the context of the kiss. He says the same thing if he wins the lottery. Well, I wouldn't, but that's just me. I kiss my wife. If my wife isn't there, I'll kiss her the next time I see her. But that's, you know, that's me. I just, I do think it's just unfortunate that this has been looked at one way for um, more than 70 years now. And suddenly it means something else. Speaking of meaning something else, so there was, and the video, I saw the video for the first time on ABC News last night. It uh, happened Wednesday night, Duke versus North Carolina. Duke's super-duper superstar, Zion Williamson, he's being called the next LeBron James, if he enters the NBA draft, likely would be the first player taken. He's a future superstar. He's wearing Nike shoes when a shoe, I mean, a catastrophic failure. It split. The shoe just exploded. And he sprained a knee. Now, one of the big stories yesterday was Nike stock taking a hit as a result of this. And it did, not huge. Uh, it was What was it? It was down 1.05%, trading at 83.95 compared to 84.84 the day before. So I don't, I don't even know if you can call that an impact from what happened. But when my wife and I were watching the story on ABC News last night, and they were talking about how it impacted Nike, my first thought was, what about the kid? And I'll be honest, I I don't follow college basketball all that closely. I didn't really know about Zion Williamson, and then I went more online. There are those who are already saying, 
hey, go to the pros and make money because you're risking injury by staying in college. This led to a column by Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post. A lot of stuff out of the Washington Post today. Saying this points out why the NCAA, she puts it, has turned education into a risk. When you are as big a prospect as uh, he is, and you don't get paid, and the argument that she makes in this column is why don't they get paid and why don't we just admit that college basketball is simply a farm league for the NBA where the players don't get paid. Yet they generate gobs and gobs and gobs of dollars. Just picking up a piece of this. When the soul separated from the shoe, it all became clear. The NCAA has managed to turn a Duke education, any place for Duke, into a risk that a talented kid just can't afford to take. What does that tell you? What does it say about the degradation of the NCAA that it has made college profitless, so profitless for great athletes, that it's just not worth pursuing? Scotty Pippen, former Bulls great, was right. Williamson needs to walk away now. He's the biggest prospect since LeBron James, and the NCAA has nothing to offer him. All they can do is take from him, steal his likeness, jeopardize millions of his future income. I think he's locked up the biggest shoe deal. I think he's definitely going to be the number one pick. I think he's done enough for college basketball that it's more about him personally, Pippen said presciently on ESPN back in January. I would shut it down. I would stop playing. Wow. Don't even finish out the season, Pippen was advising him. Because I feel he could risk a major injury that could really hurt his career. <laughs> Boy, you want to? she said prescient. I would say prophetic. Tickets to the Duke-North Carolina game were selling for more than, listen to this, $4,000 for the good seats. The athletic directors and ticket managers got theirs, and so did the scalpers. ESPN featured the game in prime time, and former President Barack Obama and Spike Lee were all over the screen at courtside. So the networks and sponsors got theirs. And in fact, a shot of President Obama pointing at the incident went viral. Duke Athletic Director Kevin White, a member of the NCAA Oversight and Basketball Committee, certainly got his. And she goes on and on, the coaches... Shashevsky and Roy Williams getting their multi-millions in salary and apparel contracts. The NCAA, she writes, has made it too unworth it. If you're a 17-year-old or his parents and you saw that injury, why would you willingly enter the NCAA maw? Why on earth would a great young player commit to playing collegiately under the current circumstances if he can go straight to the NBA? Because he wants to do his part to make sure Kevin White and John Swafford can order from the top shelf? I think it's a very interesting... I just read snippets here and there. I have been making this case for years. Big-time college football and basketball. And you know what I mean by big-time. And certainly that's big-time. Has become a multi-billion dollar corporation. Why shouldn't those who generate the product profit from it? Why should their benefit be what they might make down the road in the NBA? So her argument is talented players 
super hot prospects should just go to the NBA. Well, the problem, and obviously it's happened, LeBron, you know, and others. But you do have to usually spend some time at the collegiate level so the pros get an idea of who and what you are. So, you know, because it's, I think it would be difficult, you know, there's certainly a lot of parents and kids who are going to think right out of high school they're MBA ready. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Do you want to turn down a scholarship on the possibility that it's you're not who you think you are? So I, th- I understand her point, but I think the real point is it is time for things to change. A lot of these players don't really benefit much from the education. And yeah, a lot of people are making a lot of money. The players aren't. That should change. 1254 News Radio WTMJ. Twelve fifty-seven. Jerry in for Jeff. So Casey in Watertown is conspiratory, a uh, conspiracy rather minded. Mark my words, that shoe was tampered with. I have played basketball. My sisters have played basketball. My brothers. I have been around the game for years. I've never seen a shoe come apart, especially on the very best player. Something's fishy. Well, it is interesting that it would be. Zion Williamson. I, I, it's it's interesting. It will be interesting to see what Nike says about that and how it happened. Irrespective of that, I, I do think it sends. I, I, it is a great risk, just a, a tremendous risk for players. And I don't know that the answer is for all basketball players who think they can make the pros to go to the pros straight from high school. I I, I don't I, I don't think that's that makes sense. I think college players getting paid makes sense. I think that's what should be done. All right. Coming up, one mind, we are scheduled to speak with U.S. Senator Ron Johnson. Obviously, number one agenda item is a resolution, and there was action uh, yesterday, both the House and the Senate moving toward voting on a resolution to block President Trump's emergency declaration on border security for the southern border. Senator Johnson has said a lot of things, making us wonder what he will or won't do, will or won't vote when that happens. Uh, We'll see if he has more to say about that in uh, about nine minutes. 1259 News Radio, WTMJ. One oh nine. Good afternoon, once again, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Well, with everything going on in the world, I, I got to tell you, it was uh, Steve Scafidi earlier today played Eric Bilstead's Weekend Review, and my thought was, wait, what? All of that stuff happened this week. It's really hard to keep track. Uh, you've got Jussie Smollett. You've got. Robert Kraft, of the new owner of the Patriots, arrested for solicitation of prostitution. You have exploding Nike shoes and on and on. Meanwhile, back in government, the House will vote Tuesday on a measure rejecting President Trump's declaration of a national emergency to build the U.S.-Mexico border wall. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made that announcement Friday. 
uh, an hour after a disapproval resolution was filed in the House, and she told reporters on the conference call she would waste no time putting it up for a vote once lawmakers return to Washington next week. That will be Tuesday. It is going to pass the House because Democrats are in control in the House. It's future less certain in the Senate, where Republicans enjoy a 53 to 47 majority thus far. One senator, and only one, Susan Collins of Maine, Republican, that is, Senate Republican, publicly offered support for a disapproval measure, made it very clear several other GOP senators have signaled discomfort with Trump's uh, Trump's declaration, and Politico's key Republicans to watch on Trump's national emergency. Their discomfort group includes Wisconsin U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, who joins us now on the phone to talk about this. Senator Johnson, welcome. Good to talk with you again. Well, Jerry, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So let's start with the obvious question, the elephant in the room, as it were. Have you decided how it's going to get to your house? Have you decided how you'll vote and why, if you have? Well, first of all, let me say I completely support President Trump. Uh, His desire to keep this nation safe and secure the border, including better barriers. Democrats have supported them in the past. The only reason they won't support uh, the, the funding, which is a very reasonable level targeted toward 10 high-priority areas, is because they just loathe President Trump. So they're being complete hypocrites. It's very unfortunate we're, we're in this position. Uh, but, no, a lot of us are very concerned about this. This is, this is way more complex than it's generally being talked about. You know, all the emergency declarations in the past, a lot of these things really are, are tied to a different law the International I think, Emergency Economic Powers Act, which requires the president to declare a national emergency before we can start uh, garnish, not garnishing, but uh, basically attaching and, and taking assets away from known enemies. And so this would be a dramatic expansion of that. And as a constitutionalist, I'm pretty concerned about the, the unequal branches of government, past Congresses, and this has been going back decades, has willingly given away their constitutional authority to the president, primarily because they don't want to take the heat or they don't want to take the responsibility for making certain decisions. So they say, well, we'll let the president decide that. This would be further erosion of congressional power and further erodes that what should be a pretty delicate constitutional balance between the three three branches. So you know, a lot of us have a lot of heartburn about this. What I'm hoping is that we can continue to work with the administration and convince the president Quite honestly, as, as we just did with uh, Syria, where he's going to re- keep some troops in place so we can lead a coalition to make sure that ISIS doesn't reemerge. Hopefully we can talk to the president. You know, have him utilize uh, lawful uh, authority that won't require national emergency. Uh, for example, uh, some of the uh, appropriations authority he's been given to combat drugs. I think that would be something he could probably utilize that money uh, and obviously call better barriers a, a tool in combating this uh, opioid crisis we have as well. So we've got some time to, to play with and, and hopefully can convince the, the president not to to move forward with national emergency is, is what my hope. Otherwise, I'll have to wait to see exactly the case the president makes, what authorities he's going to use, how he's going to, and what funds he's going to appropriate. You know, so there's a multiple, multiple step process here. He has to declare national emergency. Then he has to start talking about, well, what appropriated funds is he going to be tapping uh, when all said and done. Okay, so, you know, and I, and I saw that quote from you, and here's what it made me think of, Senator, is, uh, okay, so you, you seem to have 
concerns on principle with with this concept, but yet you want to see what he does with the money. And, and the analogy I came up with that is a district attorney saying, well, yeah, this guy robbed the bank, but he gave it to charity. So I'm okay with that. You know, on principle, if you oppose the, if you will, the robbery of uh, Article One authority that you have in the purse strings, does it matter how he spends the money if, on principle, you don't like how he gets it? No, Jerry, what, what I'm saying is past Congresses have given any president certain authorities. Uh, and it, it's expanded presidential power. This would be taking an authority that Congress has given them and expanding it beyond the way it's been used in the past, but probably still in a lawful way. Okay? So, again, you've you got to take a look at exactly what the president's going to be doing with that emergency declaration, what funds it could be tapping into. It, it's, it's a more complex issue than it's being portrayed in the, in the press. And again, I'll make my decision when it comes right down to it, but I'm hoping we can convince the president to just tap into funds where his authority is very clear. For example, the $2.5 billion allocated to the Department of Defense to combat the drug problem. I mean, that'd be, that'd be fine and dandy to tap into. Plus, the other things I've been talking about is how much money is actually going to be spent in the remaining eight months of this fiscal year or in the early months of the next fiscal year. You get this, this isn't the end of the story in terms of fund, funding for border security and for better barriers. This has been going on for over a decade. Uh, and again, other presidents have been given this authority. Democrats have voted in the past for better barriers. And my guess is they'll probably vote in the future for better barriers as well. So, again, this, this is a, a long-term process here. Talking with U.S. Senator Ron Johnson uh, on on the emergency declaration. Uh, so you, you do, I guess it kind of jumped out at me when you said that. So you still think the president can be persuaded on this, huh? Well, we'll keep trying to the very end. You know, listen, uh, you know, I was very, I was very pleased this morning to hear that he has agreed to a couple hundred thousand, a couple couple hundred troops remaining in Syria. Because he's getting a lot of input. You know, I was in Munich. You know, we talked to all our European partners. They would not provide any coalition troops if American troops weren't present. And so we were providing that feedback to the president, and he has come to the very reasonable decision that we would leave a couple hundred American troops in Syria as part of a coalition, a buffer zone between Turkey and our Kurdish uh, allies, uh, as, as well as just that presence alone provides a security zone for the area that the Kurdish defensive forces and the Kurdish uh, defensive, or I mean the Syrian defensive uh, forces and the Syrian defensive coalition provide for about 4 million Syrians. We provide that kind of stability. So, yeah, I mean, th- this president does listen to reasonable arguments, and he's willing to change his mind if, uh, if he's presented with good arguments. Would that reasonable argument presented likely include, Mr. President, you're not going to be president forever, and Republicans won't hold the White House forever, and this is a dangerous expansion. You want to talk about climate change, gun control, and a litany of other issues in the hands of a Democratic president. Well, again, that, that, that's certainly the constitutional argument. That's the, the, the principled one that concerns a lot of us. But then there's just a practical argument, too, in terms of how much money are you actually going to spend. I mean, it was his own words said, I really don't have to do this. Well, he doesn't really need the 5.7 in the last eight months of this year. It's nice to have it obligated, so we know the fence is going to get uh, built, but it's not going to be spent in the next eight months or even early in the fiscal year. So you know, we, we can live to fight another day on this. And but from my standpoint, as Chairman of Homeland Security, we are trying to work with Democrats, trying to get them to the table to negotiate in good faith 
fixing all the problems we have with secure border and our horribly broken immigration system. There are a lot, there are, there's a lot of complexity to that as well. And part of the equation, that would be better border security. You know, I'd like to fix the issue of the Dreamers. Now, I would like to change these laws to provide the incentive for people from Central America sending their children unaccompanied, although now there aren't too many unaccompanied children because they're not, they're not leaving a child go to waste. They're always attaching an adult and calling that a family unit. So, there's again, there are a lot of problems that need to be fixed here, and border security is going to be an ongoing, ongoing issue. Talking with U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, I may be wrong. I heard you say barrier. I heard you say fence. I don't think I've heard you say wall. And, and I think... How much has this debate gotten hung up on semantics of, of a wall? I think most people, left and right, actually do agree with increased border security of some fashion, and maybe that does include some types of additional barriers, fencing or repairing and so on. But this this wall has become, or, or the image of it, has become almost mystical. Well, in politics, short sound bites, people kind of distill things down to, to their essence, and President Trump is a candidate kept referring to a wall. Uh, General Kelly, in his confirmation hearings as uh, Homeland Security Secretary, you know, came out of the box right away and said, nobody's envisioning a wall from sea to shining sea, but we need better barriers. So I always viewed the wall as the metaphor for better better barriers. And, you know, again, what the president's... And, and by the way, Democrats continue to, to misrepresent what the current administration's position is on this. The $5.7 billion would fund about 234 more miles of fencing in 10 high-priority areas dictated by studies of Customs Border Protection. So, again, the administration is not talking about a 1,700-mile wall. They're talking about better barriers, where we need them, and we do need them, and they do work. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, want to finish on a completely different topic and really just a curiosity question. As you are well aware, uh, there are reports that Milwaukee is the favorite to host the Democratic National Convention in 2020. And, and uh, it sounds as though Democrats throughout the Midwest, prominent Democrats, are working for this. And the belief seems to be, to me, this almost seems like a do-over. When Hillary Clinton ignored Wisconsin in 2016, they seem to think that if it hosts the Democratic Convention, Milwaukee does in 2020, that that increases the chances of carrying the state. I, I will tell you, I'm very dubious of that. But I just I would ask you as a Republican, this is kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? On the one hand, if it's going to benefit Wisconsin, I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, in terms, I'm sorry, benefit Democrats in 2020. But on the other hand, it's always good when Wisconsin gets something like this, isn't it? So, so what would your thoughts be? Well, I'm not, I'm not a real fan of the professional political consultant class and, and all the political pundits. I think they get an awful lot wrong. Yeah, yeah Hillary didn't show up here, but was that really why she lost Wisconsin? You know, from for my own part, there's so many people who take credit for my own uh, victory in the U.S. Senate yeah. race. You know, part 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 of the reason why I won is because I worked my tail off. I thought we had some pretty good messaging. I think I've done a pretty good job representing the viewpoint of every Wisconsinite. I, I know a lot of people don't agree with me, but I'm, I'm a pretty reasonable individual, and I'm out there all the time trying to convey exactly why I take certain positions. So I think it's way overblown that the reason. I won and that uh, Trump won is because Hillary Clinton didn't show up here one time. I think it was just way overblown. And I would also guess that if they hold their convention here in Wisconsin, that that's going to make one you know, much of a deal anyway. From a Republican standpoint, what we need to do is we need to establish a grassroots effort that's just unparalleled throughout the country. And that's certainly what I'm trying to work with is uh, trying to work toward as the titular head of the Republican Party of Wisconsin now. And I think you'll be hearing some announcements pretty quick uh, 
that uh, will show that that's exactly what we're going to be doing. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, as always, thanks a lot for joining us. Have a great day. All right, uh, we'll double back on some of the things the senator just had to say in a couple of minutes. 121 News Radio WTMJ. One twenty-five News Radio WTMJ. Very interesting conversation with Senator Ron Johnson on the vote. Now the House is going to vote Tuesday. They're moving very quickly on this. Everybody knows what's going to happen in the House. The House is going to vote to block the emergency declaration concerning the southern border uh, issued by President Trump. Everybody knows that. The question then is what happens in the Senate. So far, there's only one confirm, yes, I'm going to vote to block this. Susan Collins of Maine. Again, for Republicans. Susan Collins of Maine. That's it. Then there is Lamar Alexander. Tom Tillis are mentioned as iffies. Lisa Murkowski, Rand Paul. Collins is a clear, yeah, I will support the, the disapproval. Rob Portman, Ron Johnson is thrown in there, Ben Sass, Chuck Grassley, Marco Rubio, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, Pat Toomey, David Perdue, Corey Gardner, Martha McSally, and John Cornyn. Now, it sounds like what they are, if, if I'm hearing Senator Johnson accurately, they're hoping that they can get President Trump to narrow the scope of this declaration to where they can live with it in terms of not dollars necessarily but reach the reach that it causes you know, in terms of into congressional purse strings power this is going to be fascinating absolutely fascinating to see 127 News Radio WTMJ One thirty-five News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader and Jeff Wagner. So there's a meme called "21st Century Problems." It often deals with technology, just you know things that. Well, let's just be frank here, shall we? Old people like me never would have thought of. I was born in the early '60s. By the way, I think I'm. I, I was trying to figure out lately how long I would have to live to live in the 21st century as long as I did in the 20th century. I think I need to be 80-ish or something. I, I, I'm not going to do the math right now. But anyway, all you know, technology things, the whole concept of Twitter, uh, everything. But there's also 21st century verbiage. Words that we never could have imagined, at least in the form that they're in. For example, millennials turning adult into a verb, something you do, adulting. Look at me, I'm adulting. I'm paying the utility bill. Look at me, adulting. I don't live with my parents anymore. That there's something ironic about acting like an adult. Then, and this isn't all that new, but in this context, it is new. Ghosting. Now, 
the verb ghosting has actually been around for quite a while. It's generally used in the romantic sense. You're in a newish relationship, or maybe a friendship, romantic relationship or friendship, and suddenly the person is just gone. They're, they're just gone. They, they don't respond to your texts. They don't respond to your calls. You've been unceremoniously dumped without any explanation or further communication. You, my friend, have been ghosted. But even ghosted, as that verb, is now expanding. A couple of articles here. One uh, recently from the Washington Post where, uh, no, I'm sorry, New York Times, New York Times. This guy was uh, at a coffee shop. The author was at a coffee shop. The guy in front of him orders a latte and says it's to go. The writer ordered an espresso. Our drinks arrived at the same time. I picked up mine, added sugar, sat, sipped. The latte remained at the counter. The barista calling his name over and over, but the man in the suit was gone. Why would someone order a drink and disappear? Ghosting. So it happens in almost every walk of life. But here's the one, and I actually meant to get to this. I I was on for quite a stretch for Jeff back in December, and I didn't get to this. But then with the latest ghosting story out there, I decided to revisit this. Economists report that workers are starting to act like millennials on Tinder. They're ditching jobs with nary a text. A number of contacts said that they had been ghosted. Yeah, woke is another one. Mitch and Sturgeon Bay. Well done. Well done. Uh, Woke. Now, uh, a number of contacts said that they had been ghosted. A situation in which a worker stops coming to work without notice and then is impossible to contact. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago noted in December's Beige Book, which tracks employment trends. National economic ghosting data is lacking. The term, which usually applies to dating, first surfaced in 2016, so it's not as old as I thought, on Dictionary.com. But companies across the country say silent exits are on the rise. Analysts blame America's increasingly tight labor market. Job openings have surpassed the number of seekers for eight straight months back in December, and the unemployment rate has clung to a 49-year low of 3.7%. Janitors, baristas, welders, accountants, engineers, they are all in demand, said Michael Hicks, labor economist at Ball State University, Indiana. More people may opt to skip tough conversations and slide right on to the next thing. So you take a job. You have to pay the bills, right? You take a job. And then, oh, well, I didn't know this better job was there. And then you're just gone. Now, this isn't entirely new. I I know people who have done that. I have a relative who would do that. Just jump. I don't think he does it anymore, but as a young man, every time you would speak with him, he was doing something new. Now, I think he at least gave the courtesy of saying, I quit. No notice, but at least saying, I quit. I'm not coming in tomorrow. I'm done. I think he did, but even I I can't swear to that. But this is a situation where they just don't show up. 
I have heard this from several people in my life who are either, uh, you know, they run their own business or work for a business. One of them uh, is a manager for a hotel, and I'll just say, I won't say where at all. I won't even say what state. A manager for a hotel, and she would get called. We we have no one to manage the desk. Well, where's where's Debbie? Uh, Debbie apparently has ghosted us. And on a Saturday night, she'd have to go in and, and fill in. You hear this over and over and over. Now, anecdotal evidence is dangerous. And I have been going on anecdotal evidence until I read this column, this story, back then. But, I'm just wondering... How bad is this? Do you have any personal experience with this? I, not necessarily horror stories, but just, is this, how, uh, you know, and this isn't a scientific survey, it's a radio show. But I would be curious how many people out there have experienced this. 414-799-1620, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, if you've been ghosted, if you've had a coworker ghost, I just is it one of those things that is getting overreported versus reality, or is is this really a growing problem? One forty three News Radio WTMJ. One forty five News Radio WTMJ ghosting in the workplace. Applicants blow off interviews. New hires turn into no-shows. Workers leave one evening and never return. Recruiters at global staffing firm Robert Half have noticed a 10 to 20% increase in ghosting through 2018. You feel like someone has a high level of interest only for them to just disappear. Have you experienced this? Have you ever done it? That would that's a really interesting question. 414-799-1620 on the Accudet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To Joe in Appleton. Joe, hi, you're on WTMJ. Hello. We lost uh, a sales rep due to ghosting and ironically, I was just let go from my employer due to ghosting and as long as Wisconsin remains an at-will state for employment, it's never going to end. If there's no contracts in place, there's nothing holding or biting anybody to either side of the equation. Um, well, so, so what are you saying, that everybody should be a contracted employee? Well, I can tell you after being let go from an employer for an unjust reason and the fact that it's an at-will state, I've got no ground to stand on. Yeah, I wish I had a contract at this point. Uh, well, all right, Joe, thanks a lot for the call. So Joe was let go, so I guess in, in Joe's mind, he sees his employers having ghosted him. I mean, that's how terminations happen. <laughs> I can speak to that personally. Uh, to Greg in West Alice. Greg, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I've never done it. I can be rude to my fellow coworkers, but I think the last call is right. People are feeling that their company is are less loyal to them, so why should they be required to have loyalty to the company? Okay, so so your art well, not your argument, but your observation, Greg, is, look, you can be let go at any time, so why is it any different to just walk away? 
Do you think, though, that historically people have looked at it that way? Because it does sound like that's becoming more and more common. I mean, it, it used to be considered pretty poor form. Yeah, I mean, you can you can be fired without any warning because they don't know what you're going to do with the workplace. If you have a microphone, they don't know what you're going to do if they let you stay on the air, so they don't give you two weeks' notice. I can kind of understand that, but you just think turnabout is fair play, huh? Uh, not necessarily. I don't really think that. I, I agree. I think it is poor form, but 50 years ago, it would be very common to stay with one company your entire work career. Yeah. Well, right. That that's a very that's a really good point, Greg. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, it's just a different world. I mean, I'm I'm experiencing that that I had basically one profession for thirty some years and one employer for a big chunk of that. And even at my age, you know, I'm looking at I don't know how many more you know employers or careers I'm going to have before retirement. So that okay, that actually is a really good point. And I hadn't considered that. We are in a situation now where people don't expect to stay in one place forever. And that probably lends itself to more mentality. Well, look, I just, I would rather avoid the unseemly conversation and I'm going to just be gone. I couldn't do that. I, I, I really couldn't. To James in Franklin. James, hi, you're on WTMJ. Yes, yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, to kind of piggyback off of what you're saying, um, it's it's unfortunate. I'm in a position where I have a lot of um, young college students working um, for me, and I and I'll I'll uh, experience this where suddenly they they may just suddenly be gone, and it almost seems like it's just a professionalism skill that that is yet in development. They don't want to have confrontations, so it's suddenly they're kind of gone, and it's just it's unfortunate to see and. You know, you kind of wish that uh, you could kind of support that, especially in a young learner and a and someone that is looking to grow professionally. That's that's kind of the experience that I've had with that. So, let me pick up on what you just said. And I hate to blame social media on everything, but sometimes I really do think these last two. And I shouldn't overgeneralize. Some members of the last two general uh, generations, millennials and the iGen, you know, they they're having a hard time distinguishing real life from online and you know this is certainly a behavior they would engage in online so what difference is it to do it in real life or is that kind of a yeah. crazy theory on my part yeah no i don't think it's crazy at all i think it's there's a lot of merit behind that i you know it just some of those you know common social skills you kind of wish people uh would just tap into and just it, it's like common courtesy common professionalism um to be able to just have a conversation with someone hey this isn't working out um you know Something, something, you know, there's got something there instead of just like, I'm out, uh, you know, you know, so. Thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, to Peter on the south side. Peter, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, to answer your guys' question, you know, uh, I've done this ghosting twice. I've done it myself. Uh, first company was out in Hartland, uh, hired me as a forklift material handler. I go to work my first day. Oh, here's your hammer. Here's your nails. You're going to be building pellets. That's not my qualifications or anything. So I worked two days and then never went back. And the second place was out in Brookfield at a pizza company. And I just was being sworn at, cussed at by the manager. And I was like, yep, I'm not your kid. 
I'm not coming back. I didn't even say nothing. I went home, finished my shift, got my tips, got my pay, and never went back. But you didn't tell them. Couldn't couldn't you have at least told them that? Not if you're going to treat me like a little. If you're going to treat me like I'm your kid, swearing and cussing at me in front of customers at the pizza place, I, why should I give you the respect if you're not going to give me the same respect? Hmm. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Interesting. Interesting experience. To Jean or Jeannie, not sure which, in Brookfield. In either case, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I'm a recruiter, and I've been recruiting probably for 35 to 40 years, and it has been pretty prevalent the last two years of ghosting for no-shows for phone interviews, no-shows for on-site interviews, no-show for first day of employment. I did about three months as a contract recruiter up in Menominee Falls, Germantown, for a well-respected employer, uh, and they literally went from hiring full-time to temp employees just because of the work ethic, uh, people not showing up after one day or one week. So they give them 60 days temp to perm just to see if they'll show up every day. And they could they start at 14, making 16 at the end of 60 days, and they still don't show up. And we're not wow. talking just Gee. hourly employees. I've seen it on the professional end as well. I know an HR professional who gave notice. Went to lunch the next day, never came back. Wow, you know, fascinating. Gene, thank And maybe how they've been brought up and saying you can't get everything immediately. You have to gain some skill sets before yeah. you can move on and get better positions. But I think that's not the generation we're dealing with. They want immediate satisfaction and pats on the back uh. every day. Gene, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. The, the instant gratification thing is a great point. Matt and John, hang on your next. We will try to get to you before the top of the hour. 154 News Radio, WTMJ. One fifty six News Radio WTMJ talking about ghosting. People just leave work, don't say anything, and never come back. Matt in Waukesha. Matt, go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Good. So, yeah, I got a little different type of ghosting. I, a strange story is I was uh, offered a job. I applied for two jobs down in Florida um, and landed the one in, in Tallahassee. Uh, they, they moved me down there. Um, it, I, I paid for it. Anyway, uh, I was about to start uh, Monday, the Saturday before, I get a call from the job down in Tampa. Uh, it was a little bit of a better gig, and I'm not proud of this, but I just continued on the road down to Tampa. So. <laughs> Uh, kind of a crazy story. Uh, Matt, thanks a lot for the call. I mean, I get, I get the. You know, I think people are afraid of confrontation, instant gratification. I think those are all good theories. But boy, you can at least, you know, hey, I'm not coming back. Sorry. To John in Slinger, John, go ahead. Great topic, Jerry. I'll keep it short. I really think people can come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses about why they're ghosting. It's not just jobs. It's relationships. It's all kinds of things. Ultimately, I think it just comes down to a fear of confrontation. People are just afraid to have to verbalize what they feel, actually make a case based on the argument, and then be confronted and challenged on that. They don't want to do it, so the easy path is to just disappear. John, thanks a lot for the call. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Steve in Kenosha, we'll wrap up with you. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I had kind of the same sort of thing with uh, recruiters. Uh, 
I'm a professional engineer. I got a master's degree in computer science, and I had recruiters call me, yeah, you are the perfect candidate for this job, and then turn around and never hear from them again. You spend two, three hours working on a resume for the company, and, you know, that's it. So, you know, I think that really the recruiters need to say, you know, we need to be an example here and be the forefront of this. If they're bearing the brunt of it and getting a bad reputation, it goes on both sides of the fence. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. All right, so you know what? I think the way he just described it, I have inadvertently ghosted people. You know, anytime I guess communication just ends. There's some really good comments. John's I thought were excellent. Uh, we're done with calls, but I'm going to do some wrap-up comments on this after the news. And then we're going to get to the dairy farm story. What's the dairy farm story? Well, I have a very different perspective on it and than anything probably you've heard. We'll get to it after the news. 159, News Radio, WTMJ. Two oh nine News Radio WTMJ. There are a couple of things I want to get to yet in the show today. However, we have a guest that we're going to talk to. And this is a this is a difficult topic, but it's an important topic. There is an effort. There has been an effort for some time to change the Wisconsin Constitution to give victims of crimes more rights it is called Marcy's Law there was hope that it would be passed and that here's what it would take is a constitutional amendment and for that to happen in Wisconsin it has to pass two separate sessions of the legislature and then be put to voters for their approval that's how a constitutional amendment gets passed in Wisconsin there was hope, there was great hope, that this legislation would be passed in January in time to be on the April ballot. That did not happen. So the next shot at this is next, if it's not this April, it'll have to be another time. But those who support this law are continuing the push. And there is some bipartisan support of this. Now, we'll get to the... To the criticisms of this law that gives victims more rights feeling less threatened by those that are accused and so on some say it takes away rights from the accused we'll address those issues but exactly why I think this law is necessary and I support Marcy's law the constitutional change it is good to talk to someone who has been impacted by the system the way it is and that is sadly someone who's been a victim of a crime we are joined now by someone who when it happened was a victim of a high profile crime her name is terry jendusa nikolai terry did i get all parts of your name right yes you did <laughs> uh, you know that's always very important i take that very seriously terry thanks a lot for joining us greatly You're appreciate welcome. that so I, I'm going to just read, uh, well, thank you. Um, I, I want to read a little bit of your story, and then I'll let you pick it up. Okay. Nine years ago, a Wisconsin woman was fighting for her life, stuffed inside a garbage can, and dumped in an unheated storage locker in Chicago's northwest suburban Wheeling. 
Terry Jindusa Nikolai was bleeding, freezing, and left to die. But a decade later, her story of survival continues to inspire. This happened in January. Uh, the attack and kidnapping happened on a Saturday morning. The third anniversary of Terry Jindusa Nikolai's divorce from David Larson. She had gone to pick up her two little girls and walked into a setup. And then there is violent graphic descriptions of what David did to you. And I, I'll tell you what. So I want to stop there. And you can tell as much of that story as you would like and then explain why you are supporting Marcy's Law. Sure. What I first want to talk about is back then, um, we did not have Act 130, which passed after this happened to me. What Act 31 does is it helps a judge to take a look at any domestic violence that's in a relationship before they give joint custody to parents. Um, all along during the divorce, I was fighting for sole custody, uh, not to be mean to my ex and not to be controlling, but just because of the safety factor. Um, back then, they, they decided no. And even though the, the girls lived with me, he still had his visitation time. Um, in domestic violence situations, these visitations are basically just chances for the abuser to further abuse, um, you know, their victim. Um, and or the children. So I went to pick up the girls. They were with him during one of his visitations, and I went to pick them up like I normally do on a Saturday morning. Actually, I even called ahead of time because there were numerous times that he was late or he wasn't there and said, you know, I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock like I'm supposed to. Please have them ready. We have things to do today. Um, I got to his house. He answered the door and said, they're not ready yet, and shut the door. So I'm standing outside in Wisconsin winter. You know, I think it was about 17 degrees was the high that day. It was snowing. I went back to my car to warm up, waited a while, went back to his door, rang the doorbell. He then said, well, the girls are hiding. They want you to find them. And, you know, something just didn't feel right to me, but I was cold. I was in a hurry. I just wanted to get my kids. I didn't want to disappoint them if they were playing hide-and-seek. So I walked in the house, and as soon as I walked down his hallway, I was hit in the head and, and passed out. Later, you know, come to find, um, I was hit in the head numerous times with a black Louisville slugger baseball bat, and he tried suffocating me, um, sticking things in my mouth, telling me to stop breathing, um, you know, telling me I'm not going to jail. He was facing jail time because he hadn't paid child support in about two and a half years on purpose. Um, he was doing everything he could to elude that. He was doing everything he could to not follow the court orders. Just, you know, just trying to control every situation, continuing to be abusive. So he was, we were due back in court in March, and he was looking at jail time. Um, so anyways, continue to hit me in the head. I came to continue to hit me in the head with a baseball bat. Now, his defense attorney asked, how many times exactly? <laughs> um, mm. You know, the answer to that would be several because, uh, yeah. you know, when they first found me, I said, I don't know, about 20 times. And then in court, I said, I don't know, about 25 times. And they actually tried using that against me. Um, wow. my, my dad said, I should have said, I don't know, why don't you ask your client how many times it was? He should know. But uh, so numerous times, um, again, tried suffocating me with his hand stuck things in my mouth, ended up uh, duct taping my entire face, um, my eyes, my mouth, everything, my entire head all around, duct taped my, my wrists, my ankles together. 
I remember in the struggle, he had taken off my shoes and socks and pants and duct taped my ankles. And uh, then I remember he was moving me around, and I, I couldn't see anything anymore. But I know that I felt that he was putting me into something. And even at that time, even though I was hit in the head numerous times, I was still thinking miraculously. And I thought, I can't go into this thing upside down. Uh, so I, I mm. literally moved my body around, even though I felt super weak, moved my body around. So I went in feet first. He then took it. What it was was a Rubbermaid garbage can. Um, he took it outside in his front yard and filled it up with snow. So here I am with no pants, no socks, no shoes. He's filling up the can with snow. Uh, he then puts it on the back of his truck. And then I hear him go back in the house. At that time, I was thinking if the girls are still, are they, if they're really in the house, it's probably going to take them a couple minutes to get them. I remember that I had always kept my cell phone in my jacket pocket anytime I went to his house because I never knew what he was going to do. Um, I know I didn't trust him, so I always kept my cell phone in case I needed to call the police. So I made my first 911 call um, with with my hands taped together, with the duct tape on my face. I knew she wasn't going to understand what I was saying, so I just kept saying his address over and over. Um, at that point, I think they had sent out a squad and a rescue probably within about five minutes, but by that time, we were on the road. Um, I just remember feeling the truck moving and hearing the sirens pass. I, uh, uh, Terry, if I could just interrupt you there, and. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, I don't know if you mentioned this, the, the girls were in the cab with him, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, they were in the house somewhere um, the whole time. Later, I found out that he had them locked in their room, um, and oh. he did. He, he brought the girls, and he put them in the cab, and he had me in the back. Um, I so, had made a... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, um, I want to, before we break here, I want to get to the point. So if you can just kind of explain exactly how how you came to be rescued sure well i was actually he drove around for hours and hours and finally stopped at a storage locker uh put my you know me in the garbage can in the storage locker what happened is that those i made two 911 calls before that they had gone to his home um they had seen that you know nobody was home and they thought it was a rescue call so they went into the house. They didn't find anyone, but they did see blood on the floor, what, what appeared to be blood. So they found him at his job and, um, you know, asked him, where is she? I don't know. I don't know. Well, when they took him in and rested him, they found in his wallet a card for the storage locker. And after hours and hours and hours of, you know, investigating, interviewing him, they called the storage locker, and the person there looked and heard me inside. So what we're going to do in a couple of minutes, Terry, what I want to talk about is your experience in the criminal justice system okay. and why you support Marcy's Law. We'll get to that in about two minutes. 219 okay. News Radio WTMJ. Twenty-one News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. We are talking with Terry Nikolai. If you're just joining us, she, in graphic but important detail, explained a horrific crime against her ex that her ex husband uh, perpetrated against her, 
And she's she did that because she's here to support Marcy's Law, which would be a constitutional amendment, which would basically provide rights for uh, victims of crime that supporters say don't currently exist. Terry, what happened as this move through the criminal justice system that you feel, uh, or for other victims as well, but certainly based on your experience, why this is necessary? Well, in my in my particular case, there were a few things that, that stand out. One of them was, I remember, um, you know, my ex saying, being told that he was going to plead not guilty. And it was like, are you kidding me? I mean, you've got the victim who survived that can tell them everything that happened. They had 105 pieces of physical evidence. Um, it's like, are you serious? And, you know, I just felt like I really had no voice in that whatsoever. Now, obviously, it's not going to take away their rights to do that, but it would have been nice to be able to be at that meeting to say, you know, these are the reasons I think this is ridiculous. Um, another thing that happened was, um, they were not going to charge him because at the time I was pregnant with my new husband's child. Um, and in Racine County, they weren't going to charge him with that, you know, crime of the, of the baby being killed because they said that's going to open up a whole other thing. And then they can ask, you know, anytime you've ever been pregnant and if you ever miscarried before, which is utterly ridiculous because you know, even if I had miscarried years before that, that has nothing to do with miscarrying a child because I was attacked and, you know, freezing and yeah. left to die for 21 hours. Um, and my, my, I believe my body temperature was like 87 degrees when they found me. So I think that had everything to do with losing that child. Um, so it's things like that that needed to be changed. What do you say to opponents of Marcy's Law that say it... it uh, diminishes constitutional rights that defendants now have. Now, Marcy's law, don't let them confuse you. Um, Marcy's law does not do anything. It, does, it specifically states that it does not touch the rights of the accused. The accused still have all of their rights. All of their rights are constitutional. All Marcy's Law is doing is taking the majority of the laws that already exist for victims that exist and you know statutorily and change them to constitutional. Let's say this. Say there is a question of discovery and say a woman was sexually assaulted and her assaulter, you know, says, I wanna see, you know, her diary, you know, from you know, nineteen eighty six till now. You know, before, you know, judge would have to say, well, well, that's his constitutional right for discovery. Well, now, you know, the victim can say, my diary from 25 years ago has nothing to do with your attack on me two months ago. So I refute that. And that, that gives the judge more play and, and it gives him more discretion. You know what? Do I decide or do I not decide to take this discovery? Um, it is not taking away anything from the accused, if the judge decides that discovery is still important, she will say, yes, they need the discovery. But what we're doing is just stopping silly, foolish fishing expeditions that have nothing to do with the case. Now, let me share a line. Casey Hoff, a defense attorney from Sheboygan, wrote a piece in the Sheboygan Press opposing this. It says, Marcy's law has good intentions, but endangers accused rights. Listen to this one line. 
but the rights of alleged victims of crime and the rights of people accused of crimes are not equal because they have entirely different purposes. An accused person's constitutional rights are against the government, not the accuser, and that this would take away the the accused rights uh, in terms of the government mistreating them. That's that's just I, I just I would say that that's foolish. The accused still has all of their constitutional rights. All we're going to change is that if the victim can say, you know what, I don't think this discovery is important, or I would like to be at the preliminary hearing to voice my opinion, the judge is the one to make that discretion and say, you need to, you know, put in this discovery or. You know, you don't need to put in this discovery. That would be up to a judge. The judge is still making all these decisions. We're not taking anything away. And anything that the judge says, if he says, we don't need this discovery, it's because he knows that it's not pertinent and it has nothing to do with the case. All right. Listen, we really appreciate you joining us and uh, you know, especially sharing uh, your story, Terry, in the way that you're willing to do and uh, to advocate for this important issue. So thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. 227 News Radio WTMJ. Two thirty-five. News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. Jeff. Back on Monday. Before we get to the last couple of topics of the show, I want to just double back on, with the interview, I didn't get a chance to wrap up the ghosting topic from the 1 o'clock hour, and I actually want to use that to launch into the next topic. Ghosting, in this case, workplace ghosting, where people uh, make an appointment with a recruiter, don't show up, uh, have a job interview, don't show up, take a job, never show up, ever, Say yes, I'll start Monday, whatever. Never show up. Decide they don't like the job, gone. We, uh, I had a friend text say th- that he believes ghosting is epidemic. That it's just it, everything that you can possibly think of. Personal life, social life, work life. And he thinks that it's just people cannot deal with confrontation. And by people, let's be honest, we're talking about millennials and iGen or Generation Z, whatever you prefer. That many people in that generation, I wouldn't say it's exclusive to those two, though I'd, I'll be honest, if I try hard enough, I can probably think of behavior in my life at some point, I mean, I'm 57, at some point that probably qualifies as that. But it is, as a friend said, it appears, he believes it's become epidemic. That prompted a text from a dairy farmer in Oconto County. Hi, Jerry. I run a dairy farm in Oconto County, and I have employees that have ghosted me more so for the last year than ever before. And I, by the way, have heard that. I find it interesting because, listen, I milk cows as a kid, and the way I milk cows, I really sound like I was a kid, but it's it's true. I mean, we, even by the 1970s standards, my dad's farm was very primitive. We didn't have a bulk tank until I was in high school. Cans. Milk cans. People think I'm short as an adult. I am. But in, I, I, 
when I, when I started high school, I was like four nine. You know, and what was a milk can? Eighty eight pounds of milk, something like that, or is that with the can? I don't remember. Anyway, it was brutal. It's not, especially a lot of these modern farms. It's incredible. In fact, human hands scarcely touch the cow in the state of the art facilities, which segues me to a story that uh, the uh, Gannett, the Journal Sentinel, but Gannett, you know, the various newspapers, Rick Barrett, had a story. Dairy farmers are in crisis, and it could change Wisconsin forever. Dairy land in distress. A USA Today Network Wisconsin special report. Steve Scafidi spoke with Rick Barrett about this piece this morning. Very good interview. I want to take this from a different perspective, though. As I just mentioned, I was raised on a dairy farm in Marinette County. We were small, even by, even by the contemporary standards of the 1960s and 70s. My siblings likely could correct me on this, but I want to say I don't think if you include milking cows, pregnant heifers, and calves, if you include all of those, I don't think we ever had 40 head. I, I, and I think milkers... Somewhere between 20 and 30, and that might be high. I, I just, it's a long time ago. But it gives you an idea. So at that time, we were small, 100-acre farm. We were tiny. And uh, uh, what was a big farm back then? At least, you know, in my measure, a couple hundred head, 300 head, that was big. That is a small, small farm today. Let me just give you the head, or not the headline, but the lead on this, and it gives you a taste of. And I, by the way, I'm not criticizing Rick Barrett at all. I just I, I want that to be clear. There was a time when the soft glow of barn lights dotted Wisconsin's rural landscape like stars in a constellation, connecting families who labored into the night milking cows, feeding calves, and finishing chores. Hundreds of those barns are dark now. The cows gone. The hum of milking machines silenced. All of our neighbors are done, said Sue Spaulding, dairy farmer near Shell Lake in Washburn County. She and her husband Chuck soldier on, milking about 60 cows, which is tiny in today's world, on their 300-acre farm that Chuck bought when he was only 17. 17 years ago, they borrowed heavily to modernize their barn and position things for the future, and now that's come back to bite them because milk prices have gone through the floor, 40%. Now, as of February 1st, Wisconsin had 8,046 dairy herds, down 40% from 10 years earlier. Okay, that number is tricky, though. 8,046 dairy herds, down 40% from 10 years earlier. But the number total number of milking cows in Wisconsin has remained relatively consistent. So you can see where that's going. You have these mega farms, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. I don't know if we've hit 10,000 yet. I'm not sure. So you have fewer individual operations. Number of cows is about the same. Because what has happened is, so the dairy industry disappearing is deceptive, not intentionally so. 
the dairy industry as it existed in Wisconsin for a couple of centuries is disappearing. And I don't think it's realistic to believe that it will ever come back. Even with through-the-basement milk prices, when you have the economy of scale of milking 5,000 cows or even 3,000, whatever, four digits, you can sustain that. Small small operators can't. And I'll be honest, the, the newsiest part of this story to me was how many small operators there are still. And I mean small. When I'm 60 head, is, or milkers or whatever they have, is small. That is tiny. That used to be a decent-sized farm when I was a kid. It wasn't big, but it was decent-sized. I, I am actually surprised to learn how many farmers are still out there milking under 1,000 cows. 60, 80, 100, 200. That is the idyllic image that we have of Wisconsin's farm industry. That is the environment in which I was raised. If anyone knows anything about milking, we didn't have a milking parlor. We didn't even have uh, a pipeline. We carried D. Laval buckets from cow to cow to cow. It was primitive. I have been recently in the last couple of years in a state-of-the-art facility. It's like out of Star Trek. These carousels that cows are on. It's just, it's, I mean... I don't remember how many acres. I'm, on, I'm going to guess that I was told the roof covering this whole operation, the roof, the footprint of the roof was about five acres. I believe that was the number I was given. It's amazing. Now, I actually do have concerns about those large operations, not all of them. Some of them, I think, are run efficiently, beautifully. Cows are well cared for. That's not the case with all of them, with, I, I think, with most of them. But what, whatever you believe about good, bad, those operations, they're not going away. And, I, and it is, for me, it's emotional, because this is what I, I was raised in. The, the small operations aren't coming back, and I don't believe they can sustain for much longer. It is just a reality that farms have become corporate level. I mean, they're just, they're, they're manufacturing facilities really is what they are. And especially in the state-of-the-art one up in northeast Wisconsin, the operation that I saw, I mean, sophisticated, practically nurseries and maternity wards for cows. I mean, we used to, we had cows in their teens. You would never have that today. And milking as many times a day as they milk today. And on and on. That there are operators that operate even close to the way that my parents did. It's shocking that as many of them are still there as they are now. And I'm not saying it isn't sad and, and very difficult for the people who are dealing with this. I'm saying we're dealing with an economic reality here. You have this overproduction because of the mega farms and other factors, trade and other issues, where it's, 
it's going to be impossible. Now, does that mean we're not going to be America's Dairyland anymore? No. But yes, here's what I mean by that. The way we think of it, yeah. Dotting the countryside, the way he very poetically describes it, the soft glow of barn lights dotting Wisconsin's rural landscape. And when I, when I travel in rural Wisconsin, I am surprised at times to see, you know, I can take an educated guess based on what I'm seeing because of my personal experience. It's like, wow, it's a pretty small operator by today's standards. And I am surprised how many of those there are. I would like to be able to express words of hope that the ones that are out there are going to be able to continue. But I just, I, I, I don't know how. I just, I don't see how that aspect, that chunk, that slice of the dairy industry can come back or sustain. 247 News Radio WTMJ. Yeah, yeah, hang on. I'm actually sending an email. Two fifty. News Radio WTMJ. I'll give it one more chance. If you happen to get that video, we would want to pick it up with the bedroom scene. If that, if you get it, it'll make sense to you. If not, never mind. To the listener, what are you talking about? We're still talking about the dairy industry. Yeah, the mega farms, their economies of scale, buying feed, negotiating prices. The little guy is struggling. Tom in Watertown, we can take one call on this. Tom, go ahead. All right. Hey, hi, Jerry. My, my point is that we got to look at the quick trips, the Walmarts, the uh, Whole Foods. They're the ones that are going all to the mega farms, and they don't go to the small farmers. What they're doing is they're wiping out the small farmers by going to these mega farms. And uh, everybody's buying from these goddamn uh large farmers but you know what if they would go to the small farmer and uh buy their buy their stuff that we'd be a lot better off i just talked to a farmer last night and i'll tell you what his whole concern is these mega marts all these people the quick trips the walmarts and all these people that are that are they have their own farms but they're not actually their farms well, that's, and I understand what you're saying there, that, that, that they're part of the supply chain as well. Thanks a lot for the call. But my point is, and I'm not advocating, I'm just saying reality, I don't see it changing. I just don't. And, I, and believe me, it saddens me because of my personal connection to that, the old you know, dairy industry 1.0. 251 News Radio WTMJ. <laughs> 54, Zach Lee, Jerry Bader wrapping it up. Jeff Wagner back on Monday. So, we have two stunning denials going on in America right now. Jussie Smollett, despite overwhelming evidence, according to Chicago police, denies that, that he perpetrated the attack on himself. You know, that he set it up. He's just deny, deny, deny. I saw a lawyer on CNN today saying this. she doesn't know what his lawyers are doing. It seems crazy unless police don't have what they say they have. Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots, busted in a prostitution sting. Police in Florida are saying, we have video. 
the New England Patriots, he did nothing illegal. Deny, deny, deny. It's, it seems against all reason, against all logic. Here's a blast from the past. A 1967 movie called Guide for the Married Man, How to Cheat. Okay? There's a scene. There's a scene where Joey Bishop is caught in bed with another woman. His wife comes in, busts in on them, and he just denies and denies and denies. It's, well, it goes like this. Kyle, go ahead. The whole time the woman is getting dressed, she was naked in bed with him. She gets dressed. He denies, denies, denies. And at the end, she actually goes, what do you want for dinner, Charlie? <laughs> That's the world we're living in today. Deny, deny, deny. Politicians of all political stripes do it. Yes, the president has done it. Yes, someone on behalf of AOC has done it. But let's not let the evidence get in our way. Let's not... That they're obviously lying, unless the Chicago police have done the worst job of investigating ever, unless the Florida, I think it's Sarasota, police are making up the fact that they have video showing an NFL owner soliciting prostitution. Deny, deny, deny. I don't know who wrote that movie. I don't know who directed that movie. But boy, were they ahead of their time. This is... This is now the coin of the realm of public life, not just politics. I'll just deny it. I'll deny it. And he actually convinces his wife she did not see a naked woman get dressed and leave the bedroom. I don't know how well that's going to work with the American people in the long run, but one way or the other, we are going to find out.